Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. How much do you know about Lady Bird Johnson? Yes, she was the first lady. Yes, Austin's downtown lake is named after her. Yes, we honor her when we see blue bonnets in the spring. But there was much more to this native Texan. Learn more about Lady Bird, the businesswoman, political advisor, and philanthropist in the exhibit Lady Bird, Beyond the Wildflowers at the LBJ Presidential Library. 9 to 5. Learn more at lbjlibrary.org. literally an institution in this town of digging up old photos, old stories, collections, everything you can imagine under the sun about this great city. Greasy spoons, dives, old clubs. If you love this city, you're going to love it even more. Real people, real stories, real places. This is the Austin Found Podcast. Welcome back to this episode of Austin Found. We do appreciate you tuning in. I'm J.B. Hager. And I'm Michael Barnes. And this is uh, part two. You got to go back and listen to the last one if you didn't. I know a lot of you jump around with your listening habits, but we have a special guest, Rowena Dash, who is, what is your exact title at the Neil Cochran House? I'm the executive director. Executive director. You know, where we left off was more of the early history of the home, but now, now I'd like to jump in. Can you tell me how it eventually transitioned into becoming a museum and a gallery and everything that it is today. When did that all go down? Sure. So um, the Frankie Cochran Hill, um, who was the daughter of Thomas and Bessie Cochran, sold the site to the National Society of the Colonial Dames of America in the state of Texas. Long, long name. Uh, in 1958. And um, they were looking for a headquarters as well as wanted to um, operate a historic house museum in Texas. And they first opened the first floor in 1960, uh, so pretty quickly. And the original sort of ethos was to um, share different decorative art styles with predominantly locals. So heritage tourism wasn't really where their brains were. They were really trying to be a resource for Austinites. Over time, the museum expanded in terms of the spaces on view. Actually, in the 1960s and mid-70s, there were still boarders, Mm -hmm. uh, UT boarders living in the house, including one woman at least got married um, from the house uh, who was a boarder. Anyway, um, by 1980, let's say, the whole site was open to the public. And it was volunteer run until 2005. At that point, they hired their first director and it started with public programming that was probably more, much more robust than anything that had been happening while it was a um, volunteer-run organization. My husband sometimes ha- likes to say that, um, that the Neil Cochran House Museum is like a 60-year-old startup. And the problem with that is that we've never gotten to be shiny and new. We're, we're, we can't be the, you know, the <laughs> next big thing in Austin because we've been here since 1960 as a museum, been here since 1856 as a site. But at the same time, what we do today is so profoundly different. You've been from... reinvented the place. Yes. The programming there is amazing. 
talked about. You do events, you do art exhibitions, you convene uh, scholars and students on particular subjects. We'll talk more about slavery later. Mm -hmm. So it's really a hot spot in a way. Yes, we have become a hot spot. We, um, part of that's actually in, in a funny way, thanks to COVID. Taking a step back, um, you know, Gary Smith. So the Summerlee Foundation put out a impact report back in 2014, something like that, about historic sites. And one of the things that it says in that impact report, which is really about sustainability, is if you don't matter to your local community, what are you? When you took a kind of a look around in 2014, so this is soon after I became the director, the answer to that question was nothing, really. I mean, we were really focused on heritage tourists at that point more than anything else. And Austinites didn't really know we were there. And if they did know, uh, maybe they'd come once and said, Neil Cochran House, sure, check that box. Mm. Why, why would you go to a historic house museum more than once? Mm-hmm. That we, we don't change our displays very frequently. And the rest was sort of said, well, it's kind of nice it's still there and not a parking lot. But outside of that, who cares? And so what we realized was that we desperately needed to figure out how to bring in locals. And not just bring them in once, but give them reasons to come mm. again and again. Mm. And that was where the birth of our rotating exhibit programming came from. And the person who was the first director had kind of a marketing background, and I think that was really important in getting the museum established. But this was one of those moments where my being an art historian actually helped because really, honestly, at the end of the day, all I ever wanted to be was a curator. I didn't really want to be the director. You know, we're a small place, and you have to wear a lot of hats. And so this gave me the opportunity to bring in exhibits and host openings, bring in people who didn't necessarily think they were historic house museum people, but were art people or were theater people. We do a lot of theater. For the past few years, we've hosted Ventana Ballet. Mm -hmm. They do um, a deconstructed nutcracker in our historic spaces. When the person who worked for me at the time, Andrea Perry, first brought this idea to me, she thought I was going to totally blow it out. Like just, (laughs) I mean, the idea of ballet in a room with furniture (laughs) (laughs) seems crazy but we had a leap of faith and the ventana folks are so careful with our collection and so careful with our space i mean people come back year yeah they're a wonderful group to see that show and they've managed to be able to do ballet what you think of as being this very expansive art art form in the smallest venues around town and they're just fantastic i saw them perform on little platforms that were like six feet by six feet in a patio in East Austin, uh, they're they're a really great group. Talk yes. about it, the what happened during COVID, the the outdoor performance. Well, we are on three quarters of an acre, which doesn't sound like much, but the fact that we actually have grounds makes us unusual. When everything first shut down. During COVID, we closed briefly, but then we reopened and very quickly realized that we could actually do things safely by doing them outside. And that initiated for us a number of programming events of our own that rather than having to cancel them, we were able to do them on the front porch or on the side lawn. And once we started down that path, it got out and we were contacted uh, by a 
bunch of different groups. Uh, we've worked with Beethoven a lot, big fans of Beethoven. The Austin Chamber Music Festival oh, ended yeah. up hosting their entire series at the Neil Cochran House in June of 2021. It was magical. It really was. And then you have groups like Ventana, Hidden Room Theater. Let's see, Penfold Theater has done these really cool, they do uh, radio broadcasts actually, and they'll, they do a staged reading of radio broadcasts. So we've done a lot of that and become known as a site where you can be and you can be safely. Mm-hmm. We've started our own um, Stories on the Lawn. I know we're kind of in competition with the statesman, but sorry. But um, <laughs> not really. Quarterly thing. Yeah, I know. You're bigger than we are. Um, we, uh, we, we, we actually had to move a date because y'all moved your date and then it ended up impacting our date. Just but, so uh, listeners know, the American Statesman has its own uh, event called, a periodic event called the Storytellers Project. And it's our whole newspaper chain is involved in this and in each market, each large market. And, and they're, they're very informal events. They're at the Spider House Ballroom. And well, <laughs> but, you know, the storyteller community, this isn't why we're here, but the storyteller community is quite tight-knit. And is. so you don't want to have more than one storytelling event in a week. Uh, it just doesn't work out well. But the point is that we've got this quarterly um, storytelling event that we're now doing that has been really wonderful and, and, and so profoundly meaningful the stories that are shared and we're a house and so a house is that's a place a home is where the stories are held and so it fits for us from a mission standpoint but it is also a way of bringing in people who might never have thought that the neil cochran house museum was for them for for whatever reason they're not a history buff or, mm-hmm. or what and but they come and then they realize how much we do and the authenticity of being in this space when there are so few historic spaces left in our city and so then we convert them now speaking of historic spaces you have a a building a stone building behind the main house that was for you something of a mystery of how it was used it's uh, very simple it's two stories for a long time i heard you refer to it as the dependency like it was dependent on the main house but in fact it your research is showing that it was probably the first structure built there. Tell us more yeah. about that. So it is, it's a two-story, one room on each floor with an external staircase, stone structure, limestone rubble, just like the main house, but built to a slightly lower standard from the main house, smaller windows, more crumbly <laughs> uh, limestone, for lack of a better way of putting it, so you don't have the kind of really nice big stones that we have um, on the main house. And we do believe it was probably built first. So when the, our site was developed, we were in the middle of nowhere, as you've said. And um, so outside of town, that two miles to get someplace else was took a lot of time. So we think this building was probably built first and housed the enslaved people who were building the main house as well. And it's we believe it's the last intact slave dwelling in the city of Austin. We've gotten some pushback on that term. But and and if Wait, you push back from who? Well, people who say, well, what do you mean by in, you know last one? There are other places. There is a house downtown in which a slave dwelling has been encased in a single family home. It's not recognizable as such. It's not visible as such. The reality is that if you look at any element 
of our built environment that predates June 25th, let's say, uh, 1865, because June 19th isn't the day that it happened here. You're talking about enslavement. I mean, there en- enslavement was the reality of Austin prior to emancipation. One third of our population was enslaved. And so the vast, vast majority of labor to build anything that happened in Austin during that early period mm-hmm. was enslaved. So from that standpoint, anything that's still standing in the city from that time period bears the mark of enslavement. Totally agree with that. There are a few places around town, including this house downtown that has encased this slave dwelling in it, and some a place up off Medical Parkway. That was not built as a slave dwelling, but its second owners may have used some portion of the space to house enslaved people. So you can split hairs all you want, but the, the reality of it is that we are the only place that is still standing in a recognizable context um, and certainly the only place you can visit that was home to enslaved people prior to the end of the Civil yeah, that War. That was what I was wondering. Did it? Did anyone ever come in and completely remodel it and change it, or does it still in some way resemble it does. What, what it had, what it had been like for those enslaved people. It does. I mean, one of the things we're working on, we've got this a big project that's ongoing right now called Reckoning with the Past, the Untold Story of Race in Austin. And we're fundraising for, um, we're partway through the interpretive plan. And then we're also fundraising for restoration work. Yes, it is recognizable as such, but there are things like a false ceiling was put into the first floor that we want to remove so that you can see the ceiling beams again. That those sorts of changes happened over time. One so the, it's not I- identical to its appearance in uh, 1856, but it's close. But one of the things in terms of identifying it as quarters for enslaved people mm-hmm. was that there are no cooking facilities there. Right. That, that a cook would come into the main house to cook for the family and for the slaves. Uh, well, there was a detached kitchen originally, so they right. weren't going into the main house. There, there was a detached kitchen, yeah. Um, but no, this building doesn't have the capacity to produce food. It does have a set kettle in it, and a set kettle is basically a mortared pot that was used to keep water hot at all times. And if you think about you know, when we had that boil water thing that we had to do several months mm-hmm. ago in the more recent snowpocalypse disaster, you recall it got pretty irritating very quickly to not just be able to turn on the tap. So imagine 1850s, you needed water for everything, bathing, laundry, cooking, all Did kinds of Did they have to cleaning. go down to Shoal Creek to get it? or They had a cistern. They, they actually had, had two cisterns. Okay. There was one up next to the main house, and then there was one that was further out that um, presumably was for livestock. Mm-hmm. Um, so they did have cisterns. So, no, they weren't getting the, the water from Shoal Creek. Here's another question uh, regarding slavery. One of the most prominent freedom colonies in mm-hmm. Austin is right across yeah. uh, 24th Street, Wheatville. Right. And were the freed people who uh, built Wheatville in any way related to the Neil Cochran house and the owners of that? Right. So if you think back into the 18, so 1869 is when Wheatville really begins to be developed. So at that time, this is part of that window when the site was a rental. And so it's hard to know who was coming and going and who was engaging Mm -hmm. with whom during that period of time. But they were certainly the first neighbors 
uh, to our site because there was just there were no other people out mm-hmm. out there at that time period. And yes, they must. People who lived in Wheatville must have been engaging with the site and working there. And it just there's no no way that doesn't make sense. We do know during later time periods, during the 1880s and 1890s onward, of people who lived in Wheatville. And we have their addresses in Wheatville, and we also know that they were working for the mm-hmm. Neal or the Cochran family, so walking back a and block. forth. Right. I mean, I, you know, it, make, it makes a great deal of sense. My partner in all of this work, uh, Dr. Tara Dudley, who's at UT in the architecture department, she says, like, look, you know, the, the reality of it is that while there were people who were living in Wheatville who were grocers and ministers. Journalists. Because the journal- news. The, yeah. The, the, uh, Jacob Fontaine. Right. Right. Um, the majority of people who lived in Wheatville were in domestic service. Right. And so the home, the large home that just happened to be their neighbor would have been right. a, a natural space for people living in Wheatville to have worked. It's interesting that the one piece of evidence, and it is anecdotal, but I believe it, of how the uh, city government as, as we were talking about earlier in the car, uh, pushed the black communities that lived all around the edges of Austin, these freedom right. colonies, into East Austin, was to not hook them up to city services. Right. That was the, the, the stick that they were using. And so as everyone around them were getting electricity and gas and, and pavement and sidewalks and all kinds of other things, they were not. And uh, now – as we've talked about, some of those African-Americans never left right. the Freedom Colonies uh, in our neighborhood, in the Brackenridge neighborhood, which is now Bolton. You know, many persisted. But I, I, there was one story about uh, a Hispanic family who worked uh, for the, the good old Wooden family. He said that his grandfather got a house in Wheatville, was owned by the good old Wooten families, but that, in fact, it had belonged to African-Americans and they left to go to the east side because they wouldn't hook up the the uh, amenities. And, I, and I'd heard that over and over again, but I'd never heard a specific case of it, and it does involve Wheatville. Well, and I think it's hard for us to imagine today. I've found that – so Clarksville sort of famously resisted. Right. And so that – entire area had no paving and no electricity and I mean I'm a visual person and so in my head I think of Clarksville as is like when you look at the satellite image at night of of Asia and North Korea is just dark well at night in Austin Clarksville would have just been dark and and but that's a whole neighborhood whereas it's so hard to imagine that you know 2401 Pearl gets electricity but 2403 yeah. Pearl doesn't get electricity. Right, right. And so when, when you look at it on a micro basis uh, that mm-hmm. you're going house to house and making those decisions, I think we today find that really challenging to process right, right. in a way that terrible though it is, the fact that the entire neighborhood of Clarksville didn't get those. I mean, how are you laying lines mm-hmm. but not hooking them up to individual residences? Right, right, That's, right. To me, there, there's a difference there. One of the things about Clarksville and it ties into Wheatville is that, and it ties into Brackenridge and other freedom colonies is they were often on a creek 
that was not good farming land so they could homestead it. And this is true out in the country. It's true mm-hmm. in and around Austin. I didn't know until I walked Clarksville that I knew that there was this enormous canyon in yeah. the middle of it. And you're just like, wow, this this is why they came here. You know, now the land was given to them by Governor Pease. Um, they had been. Some of it. Some of it was purchased. Yeah. And, yeah. and Mr. Clark Mr. wasn't Clark. one of. Right. Uh, yeah. Wasn't one of Pease's uh, enslaved persons. So anyway, we've gone far off. No, it's interesting. <laughs> and I'll, I'll, let me steer it back to this. So this discovery. Sure. Of the back property and its significance. Right. right. Uh, we just touched on that. How did that shift the efforts of the Neil Cochran House sure. as a as a venue, as its mm-hmm. place in history, uh, tourism, everything? Yeah, it, it has. Um, it's made a, a huge impact on the way we share our story um, and what we're doing today. Michael called it said we used to refer to it as a dependency, and it's true. But any secondary building on a site, a laundry kitchen, they're all dependencies. So it's it's a generic term and. Because we knew so little about that first 20 years, and because the hills never moved in, and it seems so difficult to find out much of anything about the white residents, much less the black residents of our site who would have been either enslaved by them or after enslavement working for them, nobody really thought about the building. It just didn't. I mean, it just was, it was there, and it had lost its original context, and we knew it was a workspace, but we just didn't talk about the antebellum period. Are and there so, any existing records of those slaves? Well, that's what we found. So once we realized what we had there, what we were stewards of, and I have to give you know a great deal of recognition to the colonial dames for purchasing this site and preserving it because people ask, why aren't there any others? Well, one... It's made of stone, and anybody who's a fan of the Three Little Pigs understand the importance (laughs) of that. Most secondary structures are not made of stone. That's why your garage Mm. deteriorates before your house. A, you stop using it in the way you originally intended, and so you don't take care of it, and so it falls apart. B, often made of wood, and the wood over time deteriorates. Well, ours is stone, plus the site was preserved. It was far enough out of town. We're not on one of those city lots downtown that has become a 40-story building. I mean, lots of structures were lost downtown where even when the main structure survives, any secondary building on the site is gone. And so we didn't have anything to compare it to, which was also part of the reason we just didn't really understand what we had. But once we figured it out, we started thinking, okay, well, here's what we know about the hills. We know we know they were running out of money. We know that they sold five enslaved people. Still have not figured out. We don't know name, gender, age. We don't know anything about those people. That's work we're still trying to do. But the Asylum for the Blind was a state institution. The state kept records. Mm-hmm. And so actually in the case of the state and the Asylum for the Blind, we've actually been able to identify five people who were leased out to the Asylum for the Blind to work at our site. In one case, we know the name. Uh, it was a boy named Lamb. He was 12 or 13 years old. He was enslaved by W.P. Mabin, who we've only just discovered in the last few weeks where Mabin was. He was actually on the north side of Camp Mabry. That was mm-hmm. where his 
estate was, plantation probably. Anyway, Lamb was brought in for a month to teach students, blind white boys, how to make baskets, willow baskets. And the idea behind that was to give them something that was marketable, some some way mm-hmm. to be able to fend for themselves. The irony, of course, terrible irony being that it's a enslaved boy who has no agency of his over his own labor who is being brought in to give white children the opportunity mm-hmm. to participate in a free economy. In a, in a, right. I mean, and, and so that's one of those moments that just is sort of uh-huh. mind-blowing and, and, and helps you really understand the reality of what that economy of enslavement looked like. So we found him. And I, and, and I say we, I mean, this really all comes down to Tara Dudley, who has done the majority, vast majority of the legwork in terms of trying to find former occupants. She's a professor of architecture, but she spends most of her time actually on occupants, more of her time on occupants than she mm. does on the structures themselves because the structures themselves have importance because of the people who were associated with them. I'm, I'm delighted by that trend that we're now more interested in the people right. and their stories rather than the buildings yeah. because for the first, whatever, 100 years of historic preservation in this country, it was just about the physical building sure. and now – the, the heavy preponderance is towards people and their stories. Yeah. Tell us about your book. Sure. So so we started this work 2016, and Tara, when she went full-time to UT, brought students in um, to this project, and they did a bunch of research. And we finally got to the point where we, we weren't ready to do a total reinstallation yet, but we didn't want to just bury the research. It was important to us to get it out there. So we put up a show called Reckoning with the Past, Slavery, segregation, and gentrification in Austin. It was a great show. Yeah. Thank you. It was, it was supposed to be this sort of way of kind of connecting dots. And I saw some uh, a site in Pennsylvania, Stenton, do something like this, and and theirs looked a little bit more like a serial killer situation. Like they had, you know, uh, strings running from one thing to the next, and pictures here and there. Ours ended up not looking quite like that. It was a little more polished for better and worse. I think I kind of liked the voice didn't did it. But that was it for 15 months. And then, you know, we needed to be able to share other stories. And when we took the show down, we added a foreword to the book to it and published a short volume that brings in all of this history. And what it really does is takes our site as a fulcrum point towards understanding broader trends and experiences of life in Austin. Mm-hmm. And why we matter is because we have this ability to be physically where people were, people we know were in the 19th century and to be able to see the world through their eyes. But they matter, of course, in and of themselves, but they also matter because of the ways in which tendrils go out into the broader city. And the connection points, we've got the connection points to Wheatville. We've got connection points to downtown, the blind asylum moving across the city. You know, we've got all of these different stories that connect us to our city over 100 years. Mm. We're in West Campus. So kind of the end of our story as an independent site and the beginning of a museum is that moment when UT is struggling with desegregation. And the way in which our neighborhood changes and shifts over time because of the growth of the university is is all connected to that. Yeah, because 
I, I have a few books out there, and I always say the titles of them on this show, Indelible Austin. Tell us the title. <laughs> well, the title, um, it's the same title as uh, that as the show was, Reckoning with the Past, Slavery, uh, Segregation, and Gentrification in Austin. Yeah. And it is available through us, through our gift shop, which has an online portal. So you can also come get it in person uh, and come see the museum. Super. You know, I was going to point out, you talk about the changing West Campus. If people haven't been in West Campus recently, <laughs> you think downtown's growing up, and I mean, I mean physically up, I went through West Campus for the first time in a long time, and everything around you is, whoosh, you're in the shadows of a lot of stuff now. We are. That movie, Up. <laughs> I mean, I don't think you can lift us with a bunch of balloons because all that stone's too heavy. But, um, but yeah, no, we are in the process of being kind of, uh, the, the good news is the University Neighborhood Overlay, uh, UNO is what it's called, that plan ends at San Gabriel, which is the street we're on. And so all of us on the west side of San Gabriel, and there are a lot of historic properties um, on San Gabriel and then further west, up to this point have been protected. So we can't end up with a big tower right next to us. But we certainly are staring at them. And this is a dumb question because I don't know anything about historical buildings like this, but what kind of protections are in place for them as we see so many Austin businesses folding because of tax implications. What's that like? Well, we're lucky that we're a museum and so we're a nonprofit and um, we don't pay property taxes. Uh, If we pay property taxes, there's a form you have to fill out every single year and I'm to the point where I drive it over to the office, the tax office, because if they were not to receive that form, then all of a sudden we would have that ripped away from us and that would be frightening. Outside of that, you know, the real challenge with historic preservation in Austin is that it is almost exclusively in the hands of the owner of the property. There's very little that can be done over the objections of the owner. And so that's a lot of the reason why we have lost so much of the historic fabric of the city. We're not under threat because we're under private, you know, we're on, we own ourselves and it would take our not owning ourselves. And even above and beyond that, we do have protected status and any change that's done to our property requires going in front of the Historic Landmarks Commission. So once you're protected, there is some protection. Okay. But, you know, there are properties that have been protected that have been purchased, and the new owners just, they'll just demolish something, and, uh, you know, they can have their hands slapped, but once it's gone, it's gone. So The uh, other Abner Cook house, the Woodlawn. Right. um, There are others, but I remember when it was about to come down. Yeah. And it was in bad shape for a good long It was. While. It was. Yeah. But uh, it's in beautiful shape right now. No, the Sandifers did the right. They did the right. They did right by it. They took away a lot of um, the kind of accretion additions that needed to go and really put it back in Yeah, I got to go in condition. once for a party and it was exquisite. It's just like your place is exquisite too in a different Thanks. way. Well, in, the, uh, in t- today's current physical status of, mm-hmm. of the home, the Neil Cochran House is where is it? Uh, uh, ten being the highest structurally and finished, is it a seven uh, in out terms of ten of condition? Condition, yeah, like and in, in appearance and structure, and or is there a part of it in, in serious need of fundraising and repair? I'd say from a structural standpoint, I'd give us a nine out of ten. Wow, uh, yeah. we're in incredibly good condition. The slave quarters does need uh, restoration work to be done to bring it closer to its 1856 context, but that has nothing to do with the structural integrity of the building, which is in it, which is fine. So 
no, I, I we're we're in good shape. Um, okay. The Colonial Dames have been very good stewards of the property, and um, there are photographs from the late nineteenth century uh, that, whew, I mean, it, it looked a little a little a little creaky. <laughs> um, and so I'd say probably it looks a good deal better today than it has in um, many of its earlier parts of life. Well, Austin is very lucky to have you as the executive director of this house museum because you have transformed it and made it a place that people go to. You had help. I, I've had help. <laughs> I have great staff. But think about it, how many decades I've been here without ever been going into it until you were well, around. Well, I did, and... you know, bug you a <laughs> you bit. <did. laughs> that, that's what it takes. <laughs> uh, well, you know, the tricky part is like getting people into your ecosystem so that they it's like true. the newsletter so they know what shows are coming up. Give me a reason to come there. So why don't you share with everybody sort of the, the ways to engage online with Definitely. the Neil Concord House? Yeah. Uh, I will say there was there have been moments in time where I feel like we we're on the inside of a snow globe, like that glass wall. We can say whatever we want, but <laughs> you're not hearing it outside of the glass wall. And I feel like that glass wall has has a lot of cracks in it today, which which is good. Our website's nchmuseum.org, uh, and a thing will pop right up um, asking if you want to join our newsletter, which is the best way to keep in touch with us. But of course, all of our upcoming events on our website, our exhibits, both our current exhibits and then information about past exhibits are all live on the website. It drives me nuts as an art historian when I miss something and then I can't even find out anything about yeah, it. Yeah. So we keep all the past stuff up there too so that you can at least learn what we've now, been doing. Say the URL slowly this sure. time. <laughs> <laughs> NCH, like Neil Cochran House, nchmuseum.org. And then you brought up something interesting, the discovery of, because of COVID that it was a great gathering place outdoors. Is that yes. open to people to approach you to use it for Oh, yeah, for that? definitely. So, yeah. But we're a great site for cocktail parties for up to 100 people mm. where you're not trying to seat everybody all at one time or for a seated dinner for up to 50 board meetings. We do lot. Yes, we do lots of rental events. Okay. Things like stories on the lawn and various other things, those all do happen outside. And we just kind of uh, cross our fingers, Beethoven, cross our fingers that it's not going to rain. And right. I'm sorry to say right now, we, you know, we have a good deal of luck with that since we need the rain <laughs> right. and we haven't been getting it. But we do. And um, we've got a great show up right now. Um, Mark Smith, co-founder of Flatbed Press, The Hope Suite, which he was inspired by Barack Obama's 2008 election to create a series of 44 prints. Well, they were collages because he was the 44th president that all embed the word hope in one of 44 world languages within them. And it's inspiring. It's beautiful. You know, a, a, a great, great way to spend some time. But that's the show that we have up right now. And how long will a show typically run? Well, normally we do three temporary exhibits a year. This one we're actually leaving up for a full six months. So it'll be up until December. And then we have a, a history of Freemasonry and its connection to the Neil Cochran House on view upstairs in the museum right now. It's called Cornerstone Freemasonry, Texas, and the Neil Cochran House Museum. We were uh, both Andrew Neil and Thomas Cochran were Grand Master Mason of Texas, 40 years apart, never knew each other, but uh, they both, in, which essentially that means the president of the organization. Anyway, that's the yeah. other show that's on view right now. Cool. Fascinating stuff. Rowena, thank you. That's Ro Rowena Dash, Neil Cochran House. Sign up for that newsletter. Something Please like, go see this show and then, you know, just stay engaged for what you have going on. Very, very cool. Interesting stuff. Thank you so much. And again, 
Make sure you listen to part one if you just jumped into this and started going. It's the uh, episode prior. But uh, thank you for turning in to Austin Found. We appreciate it. Happy trails. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.